So I've been told everybody loves the little banter that Amy and I have before each podcast, but not today. Today we're going to cut right to the chase. Why? Because we don't want to waste one minute of time. We're going to discuss some issues that are critically important, legal issues, things that keep you out of jail. So today we're going to talk about just items like what happens if you get a negative review and how do you respond? Can you give your GP money? How much money can you give them? Can you give a patient, you know, a prize or something for sending another one? Or what about the woman that comes up front that absolutely berates your schedule coordinator because uh, little Johnny chewed on a jawbreaker, broke six brackets, and she wants them fixed at 5.30. So today we're fortunate enough to have Trey Lawrence. He's the vice president and general counsel at the AAO. Hold on to your hats. This is going to be action-packed. Welcome to the Survival Guide for Orthodontists, the podcast that makes you the authority in orthodontics in your community. Get ready for insights on how to compete on expertise and trust against mail order and retail orthodontics. It's not always about the lowest fees. And now, from the People in Practice team, your hosts, Dr. Leon Klempner and Amy Epstein. Welcome to the Survival Guide for Orthodontists. I'm Amy Epstein. I have 20 years of marketing, branding, and PR experience working with companies both small and large on everything from branding and transitions to digital lead generation campaigns. I co-founded People in Practice with my dad, Leon, just about 10 years ago. And I'm Leon Klempner, retired, proud board-certified orthodontist, graduate of the University of Maryland dental program, Tufts Ortho, and currently teaching at Harvard. As my dad said earlier today, we welcome Trey Lawrence of the AAO to talk about some of the legal questions that crop up regularly and how we should handle them. Trey is vice president and general counsel at the AAO, and prior to joining, he practiced with a large law firm in St. Louis for approximately 15 years, concentrating on the areas of litigation and regulatory matters. Trey, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you all for having me. I'm very excited to be here. That was, uh, you've set the bar very high, including keeping the <laughs> listeners out of jail, but I will do my best try to live <laughs> up to that. That sounds good. So let's dive right into it um, and talk a little bit about the last point that my dad mentioned, which is about patience, unhappiness, online reviews, responding, that type of thing. So, you know, one of the foundations of our marketing programs for orthodontists is reputation management. So dealing exactly with these types of issues. And while for us, it largely focuses on building positive reviews, we really work hard to prevent negative comments from becoming public reviews. Our program focuses on encouraging patients to leave feedback, so private feedback on a private platform where we can identify any sort of issues or unhappiness before patients have nowhere else to go and they just go to Google and to air grievances. But every so often, a patient simply writes something negative. Can you talk to us a little bit about some practical considerations when responding to something negative online? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, for all of the wonderful opportunities digital marketing offers, and I think, you know, most of the member or most of the listeners probably are very aware of all the benefits it can provide. It certainly has some downside too, and probably by far the the biggest downside is the negative comments. So 
we get a lot of calls at the AO from members who are dealing with this. And the number one thing we try to tell people is our knee jerk reaction as humans, as compassionate people, as people that have invested a lot of time and energy in your career and your education, our, our knee jerk reaction is to respond. And by far the number one criteria for responding to these negative reviews is balancing the considerations. You want to respond. You don't want to just ignore it and you know, maybe appear to a third party that's reading as a jerk. But at the same time, you want to keep your response as brief as possible and get it offline as quickly as possible. So we, if you have a review like that, the wording doesn't necessarily, there's no magic wording to respond, but the general gist of the response that we suggest is we... Uh, something along the lines of it appears there's been a misunderstanding please contact our office to set up a time to discuss and so through that you're not not responding you don't appear as an unconcerned jerk but at the same time and the other thing that you're not doing you're not admitting liability because a lot of the things that we might naturally have a tendency to say like I'm sorry this has happened or you know it's it's unfortunate that this occurred something like that may easily be construed as a plaintiff's attorney on down the road as an admission of liability. You definitely don't want that. So mm -hmm. it appears there's been a misunderstanding. You're not admitting liability. Please contact our office to set up a time to discuss. So let's get it offline. Mm -hmm. What about something like, um, you know, I'm sorry you feel that way. What do you feel? What do you think about that? I mean, it seems that having sorry somewhere seems to disarm people. Without admitting liability, do you think we should avoid that word altogether? You know, I come at this from the perspective of having been in the courtroom for 15 years before I came to the AAO. So I have absolutely seen instances where I'm sorry was construed to a jury or a judge in a completely different light than it was said originally by the mm -hmm. speaker. And, and the problem is... It, what what means something very clear in one context when you type it online can can appear to mean something very different when it's disconnected from that context in front of a judge or jury. So as much as you know that the kind gentle human that I like to think I am is very appreciative of the word sorry and I understand what it means but I'm very hesitant to recommend to people from a legal perspective you know I'm, I'm pretty emphatic about not using that word. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. For us, it's always this balance of uh, coming to the coming, you know, responding and showing up as a human, like you said, um, and also, so, uh, you know, addressing it, taking offline, but then also not encouraging any further discussion. And so that's the, that's the point I think my dad's also trying to get at is like, okay, if it's like, it seems there's been a misunderstanding, you know, I'm a little afraid of what the response is in terms of I mean, how do you limit I guess that's the question how do you m limit responses what happens if they write back like no misunderstanding here's what happened that's what we're trying to to limit because um, you know, taking it offline is, is first priority You're, we agree completely yeah no absolutely because our what we find is that comment number two that the disgruntled patient types is usually even meaner and nastier and yeah. oftentimes even more untrue than comment number one and it just progresses right. from there so right. yeah we just re we just recommend that if somebody comes back and says you know yeah but and then something additional just repeat the same thing again you know as as we said it, it's 
you know, it appears there's been a misunderstanding, please contact our office to discuss or whatever your, your wording is that you mm -hmm. prefer to just say, you know, as we said, and then just repeat the same thing again. Because I think after you say that a couple of times, then the, the disinterested third parties that are reading that, when, when they read a couple of times, you've invited this person, no, just please contact us, please call us and let's talk about it. And then the person continues to type negative things. I think that would be viewed unfavorably by most third parties that are reading it mm -hmm. yeah we, we try to keep our clients off of this and and, and coach them in terms of, of of how to respond could you just just for our listeners could you just go over what the ramifications are if they um, try to argue the point and maybe introduce some um, you know HIPAA information or privacy information what are the ramifications from a legal standpoint if they do that yeah that's a great point and that's another one that we drive home to members that ask about this because when the patient initially gets on and types something that's you know mean-hearted and, and maybe not true you've got one set of problems that are purely public relations problems but then right. if you try to respond substantively say the patient says you told me to do this and it's clearly untrue you absolutely did not tell them to do that you know a medical something something related to their treatment and you get on and say no as you know i told you that you needed to do this then it, you that patient clearly has not authorized you to disclose that uh, personal information about their treatment and so now you've just created you know in addition to your pr problem you've created a hipaa violation potentially and then there are financial privacy laws that work just the same so if the patient says something about maybe they make a misrepresentation about having made you a certain number of payments and that's not true and you get online and say no that's not true you haven't paid me in six months now you've potentially violated federal or state financial privacy laws so it's very easy to quickly wander into additional violations that didn't occur or didn't exist before you started responding to the patient. And from, from a financial standpoint, what could that mean? Um, those, those privacy laws, both HIPAA and financial, tend to carry with them very weighty uh, fines, potentially. So it could get expensive very quickly if you're found to be in violation of either one of those laws. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm, I'm going to, in the interest of time, just switch gears a little bit here. And, you know, as you know, digital printing is becoming more popular as the digital printing, the cost of, of buying a digital printer has come down. So uh, printing aligners, many of our clients are already printing their own aligners in-house or are looking into it. Uh, we do a lot of branding work for our clients, and lately we've been discussing the limitations with regard to product branding, and particularly when you print your own aligners versus outsourcing them to a third-party vendor. Can you talk uh, a little bit about some of the potential legal pitfalls of printing and branding your own in-house aligners? Yeah, definitely. This has been a topic that's been near and dear to our AAO legal department as the AAO has recently launched TechSelect, which is a member resource. Uh, it's a website where members can get all kinds of valuable information about printing aligners in-house. But the big question that's come up through that has been people are generally aware of the FDA and some of the requirements for registration of medical devices. And so naturally, they have a concern, well, if I'm going to print my own aligners in-house, do I need to register these? Is, you know, is there some paperwork I have to fill out with the FDA? 
So we did a lot of research into this, talked to a lot of outside attorneys who specialize in the FDA field. The challenge with many, as with many areas of the law, it's not entirely clear. There's not one single statute that you can just go to and it definitively answers the questions. You kind of have to piece together answers from various sources. But we got a very good consensus from all of the outside attorneys that we talked to that it is true that that clear aligners are class two medical device that in some instances is regulated by the FDA and requires registration with the FDA. But the answers we got, and we even talked with an individual at the FDA on this question, is if you are printing aligners in-house and using them in treatment of your own patients, then you do not have to register those with the FDA. You don't have to do your own registration because there's an exception, there's a carve out for doctors who are using a medical device for their own patients. And the consensus was those aligners fall into that. The, you know, we get a lot of questions related to that. Okay, I understand that. I can use them for my patients, but can I advertise this? Can I put on my website that I print aligners in house? Or what kind of you know packaging? People understand generally that packaging can, or the labeling can be a consideration for the FDA. So can you know? Can I put them in a box with my practice name on it? Can I can I create a brand name for my aligners? Um, mm-hmm. And the the consensus seems to be that if you are again, if you're only using the aligners in-house for your own patients, then you can advertise on your website or your other social media that you print aligners in-house, that you have that capability for treating your patients. And similarly, there's doesn't appear to be any issue with putting your practice name, you know, a label with your practice name on the box with the aligners, that kind of thing. The two areas that that the consensus was that there could be some concern and you probably would need to talk to an FDA specializing attorney is number one, if you're gonna print aligners and sell them to other practices, so for Mm -hmm. use on patients other than your own where you're not the doctor of record, that could bring in some FDA registration requirements. And then secondly, if you're going to create a separate brand name for those mm-hmm. aligners. So if I'm, you know, if my practice is Lawrence Orthodontics, but I want to put a brand, you know, Clearview aligners on the box, something that's totally different than my practice name, that could potentially uh, invoke some FDA registration requirements. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Exactly the information that we need as we are often faced with this question. And also some, you know, with regard to in-house printing, so much is focused on the materials and, and the equipment and everything. Then we get to this branding part um, and and it really hasn't yet been considered. So it's helpful for us to be able to equip our clients with this information. So let's also move forward a little bit and talk a bit about um, the term fee splitting. Um, It's one that's discussed a lot, and there are some clear-cut legal boundaries and also some gray areas ethically, as we understand it, around fee splitting. Can you talk about some of the common issues, for example, gifts to referring practices, referral incentives to patients, and how to avoid falling within the fee splitting prohibitions? Yeah, definitely. So fee splitting is one of those things that, like you suggested, you know, everybody has an understanding if you... For instance, if you made an agreement with a general practitioner for every patient you send us, I will give you 10% of the fee. Clearly, that's going to be a fee splitting 
situation, and it's going to be a problem under the law of any state in the country. But the gray areas are some of the more informal, you know, like a situation, the kinds of questions that we get at the AO. I have a general practitioner who refers his patients all the time. So every Christmas as a thank you, I send him a case of wine or, uh, you know, I, Hey, I thought of a great idea. I want to offer a program to general practitioners in our area where every patient that they refer to us, I'm going to send them a hundred dollar gift card to Amazon. So those are mm-hmm. the kind of questions we get. The challenge with this is, you know, one of the lovely benefits of the 50 state jurisdiction that we live in in the United States is we have 50 different sets of laws under 50 different dental boards. So they mm-hmm. they vary on the specifics, but the general principles I can give you that I think will apply to everybody. One situation that you want to be careful about with fee splitting and that's probably going to fall in the fee splitting category is if there is a one-to-one correlation per patient. So the case of wine that I talked about a second ago, there's not a fee splitting concern there because there's not a, it's not a case of wine per each patient. It's just one general gift every year to the general practitioner. So that's likely not going to be a situation of fee splitting in any state. If you do have a one-to-one correlation per patient, you know, the Amazon gift card or even patient referral incentives, you know, where you advertise to people, your own patients, hey, if you refer a friend or family member to me, then we will give you a gift card in a certain amount, that kind of thing, where there is a one-to-one correlation, then you have to look at the amount and the value of the gift. So most states will say that if the gift is of a nominal value, then it doesn't fall under fee splitting. And then what constitutes a nominal value kind of varies all over the place depending on the state. The most common numbers that I've seen are in the $40 to $50 range, somewhere around there. So maybe a gift card for $25 for each patient referred may not be fee splitting because of the amount. Um, You know, a $100 gift card is probably going to not be considered nominal value in any state. And then the other wrinkle that you have to look at in your particular state is whether the state measures nominal value on a per gift basis or some of them will do some of them will do a calculation over the course of a year or some other time period so even though you know in some of those states even a $25 gift card in itself might not be it might be considered nominal but if you add five or six of them together during a calendar year then you might be getting into problems so if you're going to be doing any kind of a referral program on that per patient basis then you really need to check with your state dental board or your state dental board's rules on what constitutes nominal value make sure you stay under that and also look at how you calculate it is it per gift or over a certain time period Mm -hmm. okay great really helpful yeah 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 so let's get back to the woman at the front desk that is uh, irate about the fact that there is no one-hour appointment for her son that has six brackets broken at 5.30. And she's cursing out your staff, and she's, you know, disrupting. And, and uh, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the strategy regarding, you know, when to terminate, if we can terminate, what are some of the best practices for doing so? Sure. So, you know, one of the things that is very helpful to practitioners in this area is the state rules and state laws are very generous on the discretion that a practitioner has over when is an appropriate time to terminate a patient. They're very 
very discretionary toward the practitioner in that area. So there are a lot of reasons that orthodontists can terminate a patient and are perfectly justified under the law in doing so. So certainly the the problem patient, definitely, you know, the argumentative patient, the patient who, the patient themselves or the parent becomes such a problem that it's disruptive to your other patients, to your staff, you know, certainly if you get into territory where there's physical intimidation or threats to your staff, that kind of thing, the, the yelling that becomes a distraction to the entire practice, all of those problem patient situations are absolutely have have ventured into the ground where the doctor can terminate the patient and then there you know there are lots of other situations you could have a patient that's so non-compliant that it it gets to the point where treatment's no longer beneficial to the patient so whether it's failure to uh, abide by the treatment instructions or missed appointments that's a big one where you have the patient that's a perpetual perpetually missing appointments that can be situation for where termination is justified. Um, non-payment can be a, a situation where patient you're justified in terminating a patient. You know, obviously we don't recommend terminating a patient after one or two missed monthly payments. But if you have the chronic, ongoing missed payments where we're getting into six, eight months, that kind of territory, then that could be grounds for termination. So there are a lot of situations where you're justified in terminating, and really the consideration then that's key is making sure that you drew it do it in a proper method so that you don't run into problems with either a dental board complaint abandonment being the biggest one or a malpractice suit and so what we recommend is that you need to certainly at the time of termination you need to give written notice that explains to the patient that they're being terminated and why they're being terminated if it's something where you have the opportunity to give a warning, then we would recommend doing that in writing too. So for instance, with the missed appointments, you might you know, make, have your staff make phone calls if they can't reach the patient, then send a letter and the letter says, you know, you've, you've missed several appointments with us. It's very important that you regularly keep your appointments so that your treatment goes successfully. If you continue to miss appointments, we may be you know, forced to um, end the treatment and, and discontinue as you know, as a patient, something along those lines to where you've given them warning and then you can send the follow-up letter if you have to take action. But definitely have all of that in writing that's sent to the patient. If you have the patient that's just disappeared and not responding, then it's probably best to send those letters by certified mail, return receipt requested so that you have proof of delivery. And then the, the steps that you need to take if you do send that final termination letter, the steps to avoid the abandonment claim are to make sure that you offer to the patient to, that you are available for a true medical emergency if one arises in the next 30 days or 60 days. You don't want a patient to be able to claim that they had a true medical emergency come up and they were unable to reach you. And you also don't want the patient to claim that you terminated them in mid-treatment and they didn't know where they could go so we suggest telling the patient um, you know we're ending treatment with our office but if you would like to continue treatment with another provider we will be happy to recommend um, names and contact information to you something along those lines so that they don't mm -hmm. have that abandonment claim where they felt like they were left with no other option to pursue that's really really helpful 
Are there standard templates for both the script for a warning and also the written um, letter for termination? Should it come to that? It's a little challenging because the situations can be so different and, and so much of it is based on context. So the, the, you know, clearly the, the mother that's screaming at the receptionist at the front desk is a, a much different letter than the disappearing patient who's just stopped coming to appointments. But certainly for AAO members, if you get to a point where you need to send those letters and you're looking for some advice on specific content for your situation, the AAO legal department is happy to talk with members and mm-hmm. and members, you know, staff and team in their practice even, and give them some advice on how to draft those letters. That's wonderful. Okay. I have two quick uh, follow-ups. I remember in practice, there were many times when I followed all of these rules and, and drafted the letter and sent it certified, and they didn't pick up or they didn't sign it. They didn't take the letter. So the letter ended up coming back to me. We used to put the letter in the chart just as proof that we didn't open it. And Is, there, is that the recommendation at that point? I mean, what, what can you do if they don't, uh, they don't sign and they don't accept the letter? Yeah, that's a great question. And thankfully, the law doesn't expect the efforts to be perfect. You know, the, obviously, you don't need to send out a private investigator to tail the patient and try to track them down somewhere. The law does not require you to go to that extent. The, re, the law is much like a negligent standard generally in any malpractice. It's what's reasonable effort in these situations or these circumstances. Mm-hmm. So certainly, if you've gone to the effort to make phone calls, to send a letter by certified mail return receipt requested you cannot force the patient to be there to accept it so documenting all of that I'm I can't imagine that any jury in the world or any judge would not look at that extent of efforts and not think that those are reasonable under the circumstances and ultimately reasonable is judged by what the the community standard is for similarly situated you know in this case doctors or orthodontists and I think that would be considered you know in any setting in any local setting, that would be considered a reasonable effort at that point. And, and you know, I mean, years ago, I had, everything was in charts, and now everything's electronic. So can you, you know, take a digital image of it and, and put it in the chart, or do you recommend physically saving the letter? The, you can do either one of those. You have to, a lot of these kind of questions, you really have to think, you have to put yourself in the position of the jury member that's sitting in the jury box if this, you know, the absolute worst case scenario and this goes to trial in a malpractice type of claim. What's going to make the most impact on the juror? Certainly, if I hold up the physical letter, you know, if I'm the lawyer and I hold up the physical letter that has all of that labeling on it from the post office and no signature and i say you know look dr klempner tried to send it and i hold that up that's going to make the most impact the next best thing would probably be the digital scan of the letter i can still hold that piece of paper up Mm -hmm. um the the thing that's maybe not as impactful is just a written you know typed note in the patient chart but definitely Mm -hmm. some kind of image the visual is always going to have more of an impact on a jury member and lastly you know whenever i went to terminate a patient, I would carefully review the chart. And I was just wondering what your thoughts were about any difference between an extraction patient and a non-extraction patient. 
any difference between a case that's kind of going well and a case that's not going that well or a case that might have some root blunting. You know, I, I would always kind of factor those into the equation as to whether I was going to give them another chance or not. <laughs> just because, I, you know, I was just concerned about the, you know, the malpractice suit that might follow. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and that definitely should factor into the decision of whether or not to terminate at a particular point. Certainly, the general rule it's stated differently in different jurisdictions, but the general rule is that you should not discontinue treatment at a point. When you discontinue treatment, you need to leave the patient at least in the same or better condition than they were when they first started treating with you. So the extraction case is the easy one. You know, if you if the extractions have just recently been performed and the the spaces haven't closed up yet then clearly if you stop treatment at that point the patient is worse off than when they were when they came in or at least they've got a very good argument that they are so I would definitely continue treating to get the patient at the same or better condition than they were in when they started treating with you and then the other consideration is sometimes you know certainly if you've got some kind of an active appliance that's in that's got to come out before you officially discontinue treating them and terminate them as a patient. There may be other situations like that where you do need to see them before you feel safe turning them loose and, um, and, and discontinuing treatment. So you may need to wrap something up. So really, I found that the best resource for that, the folks that both can advise on the legal aspect of that and then also are very familiar with the clinical side are going to be the the various malpractice insurance carriers and AOIC is the one I'm most familiar with you know I always recommend to folks if they're insured by the AAO insurance company to call them up before if you have any questions about terminating a patient like those because they're very well um, experienced in dealing with both the legal and the clinical components of that question. Fantastic. Well, Trey, thank you so much for lending your insight and your expertise with us today. It's been so informative. We would definitely like to have you back for another episode if you're open to it. Oh, absolutely. Happy to join you guys anytime. That's great. In the meantime, if our listeners have any questions and would like to reach out to you directly, how can they best contact you? I am happy to take questions anytime. Uh, I, my email and phone information you can find on the AAO website, but in case uh, somebody doesn't happen to be a member and would like to call, uh, email at tlawrence, T as in Trey Lawrence, at aaortho.org is the best way to get a hold of me. Perfect. All right, great. Well, thank you again, and we will talk to you again soon. All right, thank you all. You can subscribe or download other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate you telling a colleague. For more information about people in practice, you can sign up for our free marketing newsletter on our website at pplpractice.com. Thank you for listening. If you're listening from jail, it's on you because uh, Trey has, has so given direct. us what we needed. <laughs> Listen, you know, Trey's given us some valuable information he here. Sure and has. if, you, if yeah. you're not listening to the podcast, you're not getting this stuff. So um, anyway, if you want to hire a great marketing company, People in Practice is the one to go to. Uh, shoot me an email at leon at pplpractice.com. Now that we're being I'm direct. Not, I'm not embarrassed. Uh, and, and the truth of the matter is that we are living at a time when it's never been better to be an orthodontist. We're, we are in the golden age but you need to take advantage of it. So until next time, bye for now.
Thank you for joining us on the Survival Guide for Orthodontists, where we help your practice grow within a massively disrupted industry. Subscribe to this podcast and connect with us on social media. Find us online at the survival guide for orthodontists.com.